My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter. We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you. Hello, Bea. <laughs> Hello, Jay. It's been a while since we recorded I know. these things. It's been quite a while. So healing is what I wanted to talk about today. Okay. The The concept of healing. So before you actually get into what you want to say, why is it coming up for you? What What's the What's the reason? Well, there's there's multiple multiple reasons, but I, I'd say the first thing that brings it up something that I, I've noticed not only on social media but other outlets. Uh, healing's a big topic lately, and there are there are certain members, uh, people out there, celebrities, whatever, that endorse certain types of healing practices. The the thing that I'm kind of, you know, deducing from all this is what I think. I think a person is, here's the thought I have. A person can do a lot of healing things without actually healing. Mm-hmm. Something's been branded as healing for whatever reason. A person can participate that and still not penetrate the source. And there's some different things for that. For instance, you know, a name that's really big right now for all kinds of reasons is Aaron Rodgers. And uh, I saw recently where he said that he was ready to go down for another ayahuasca retreat. And I have no doubt that that ayahuasca can be an agent of transformation and healing. But kind of what I'm getting from like the celebrity sphere, and I've told you this before, is that one of the biggest benefits that I'm seeing from ayahuasca right now is... Uh, it gives people the benefit of being able to tell others they've done ayahuasca. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> and so uh, when I look at Aaron Rodgers and and I know a little bit about his life, he doesn't have a good relationship with his family. He's constantly coming out and saying things that are pretty inflammatory and accusing people of, of heinous things without any basis at all. Uh, and I asked myself, is this someone that is healing? Mm-hmm. And I, I you know, I, I think we have to be careful because healing is not about perfection. It, it's not a it's not a behavioralist thing. Uh, we're not looking for better behavior when we're healing, but that can be a concomitant of it or or um, uh, for for sure it can change our behavior. But I guess sometimes I'm socially, I'm questioning the the sincerity of all this, because what I think is that, you know, we are all, we all have wounds, we all have complexes, we all have trauma. And there's questions I have about this, though. I actually wrote down my own definition of healing, and I wanted to see what you thought of this. This is something about 15 minutes ago. So, and I'm sorry if this sounds too, (laughs) I don't want to sound professorial or anything here, but so I put healing is an ongoing life process Hmm. by which one is engaged with their suffering. And by doing that, one learns how to live with it in a way that does not exert the same level of control over a person's life as it once did. Hmm. To me, that would be what I, that's what I think of. But when I think of the wound, I I think of a wound as an opening that if it were ever completely healed, a person would lose connection to a certain resource that comes from the wound itself. And so my, my questions are, first off, what is healing? Does anybody completely heal? And I like, personally, my view is healing is more of a journey or something we connect to than it is a destination. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about any of this? Wow, there's so many. So the first thing that I agree with you completely, and I love your definition, by the way, it doesn't seem 
academic or dry or one of the words that's key in my view to what you were saying is that it's a process and that's really important from the way i look at things certainly from a jungian viewpoint because i had this question come up a lot in in our group when we started years and years ago about the notion of do you ever this is going to be applied to the spiritual seeking that people have right and you know, they're looking to be enlightened in some way. And that's just not going to happen in the way that people think I th it's, it's going to happen. You don't wake up one day and, you know, suddenly you're free of everything. And I think there is a correlation between that and healing. And so there is an idea that, yes, you will eventually find the magic wand and it could be ayahuasca, it could be, and you're seeing this, you're totally right. It's in the culture right now because there's so good, there is really good solid research about psychedelic, uh, psychedelic assisted therapy. And it is showing to be very powerful, but even there, <laughs> you know, um, it's not something that is going to wholly fix your life. And I think the best example of this, I think I might have mentioned it to you, is the example of uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, who has written so many books on trauma and who is really an expert in this in this field, who just recently talked about going down to, yes, an ayahuasca ceremony with a bunch of other healers, Western healers, invited by some shamans down somewhere in the Amazon. And, uh, he, you know, after the first day, he was actually, he, he talks about being taken aside by one of the, the leaders of this retreat to say, you are too, your energy is so bad, it's contaminating the group and you need to do individual work. And that's what he did. First of all, I think it's incredibly courageous of someone who is considered such a healer to even talk about this, which he does. That's one of the reasons he's such a, a great uh, speaker on all these subjects. But secondly, it speaks to the fact that, and you know, this man has been working on himself. He's a psychiatrist. He's been writing books. He's been doing everything you would imagine would lead to healing. And yet, and yet, you know, he still has a way to go. And uh, so that's number one, the idea that there's going to be an end end point or a destination, I think is really misguided and actually puts, I don't know if you, what you think about this, but I think it puts really unrealistic expectations on people so that they feel like failures if they don't get to a point where something is no longer, the complex is no longer taking over the life or it's a little bit like with addiction, right? There, There is a perfectionism problem where there is this this point and at that point you become acceptable. And so I think it has, it has that shadow mm -hmm. side to it that is really scary. So that's one. The process, I think, is really important. But I think also, I don't know if you were intending to this or, you know, you just read it out loud. So maybe you did intend and I've just misheard. But it sounds like what you're saying, which I agree with, is that part of what makes us who we are is the wound, is that thing that we need to be healed. And then if you get rid exactly. of it, you might be getting, getting rid of the gift. And there, this is highly, I mean, this is what was talked about. There's a book actually about Jung called The Wounded Healer. Um and I think somebody referred to him that way, or maybe he referred to himself that way. But you almost think that the people who become experts like Gabor Mate, like, like Jung, and it's never fully resolved. Jung never thought he fully resolved it. Gabor Mate is 80. He may never fully resolve this issue because maybe that's not what this is about. So, uh, so talk to me a little bit more actually about that part of it, about the wound being related to maybe the gift or the thing that is somehow in our lives. And we want to be careful about that because that doesn't mean that we're going out there searching to be wounded or abused or whatever. I think there's a, no, you know what I mean? Like there's this either or mentality that if you say anything, then somebody is going to jump in and say, well, that you're, 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 you're blaming the victim. No, no, no. I'm saying we all have these, these, these type, different types of wounds, psychological, whatever. Um, and that, somehow they have made us who we are but but that doesn't mean that we're excusing we're we're condoning if the wound happened as a result of abuse or anything like that it just means that it's accepting what is it it happened and so we're mm -hmm. there right so talk to me a little bit about that part of it about how you see how this could actually be shaping your life in some way not always in negative ways sometimes maybe in positive ways or maybe forget negative and positive it's just shaping your life well, you know, thinking about my own life is the only way that I can do this. Yeah, of course. So what, I, what I've talked about has to do, you know, a lot about there was a wound. There's the wound of grief. And and uh, what what grief is and how that works in a person's life. Often, uh, and, and this is this is weird uh a weird thing about grief because <clears throat> you know of course they say everyone grieves differently because it is an individual process but uh, a lot of times i'll see memes or something and 
it might be a celebrity again that we're talking about social media. So people pass around these and half the time it's not even the celebrity that said it. But we'll talk about losing someone and how you just never get over it and uh, you will never, you know, you will hurt and hurt and hurt for the rest of your life. Well, first of all, I don't think we necessarily get over anything. That's not that's not the language I would I would uh, I would choose. I would say we get through something and we continue to go through it. But one thing this does to me is when I hear people talk about grief in that way, it's like, well, I don't really feel that way. I, I don't I don't hurt and hurt from a very serious thing that happened when I was in my early twenties. It's been a process that I've grown through. But I'm not at that point to where I feel like I did the day of, or the week of, or the year of, or the month of. What has happened over time is that that experience has transformed in a way um, to where I can no longer say that, you know, I'm hurting. I don't feel like I'm hurting with my loss. Uh, does that mean that something's uh, missing with me? Does that mean I'm not connected to my grief? Because I could see people saying that. I don't necessarily think so. Show you a way. So I may not feel that that emotional pain that I once had uh, that is like no other. But uh, I'll give you an example. COVID comes along in 2020. And I took COVID very seriously. I thought it was very scary. So in, in just to preface this, for people that haven't heard this part about me, I lost uh, my younger brother tragically to a car wreck when I was 21. So that was a huge loss and it was sudden. And uh, this is how my complex, my wound with that grief affected me. Because that pain was so sharp and so harsh and it affected me so profoundly, when COVID hit, I was obsessed about the safety of my family. Because I knew what that pain is like, and I did not want to go through that. And so my whole life was obsessed with who's wearing a mask, who's not wearing a mask, you know, what kind of gatherings are you going to? And, and I'm just completely policing the family. And, and what I was able to connect that to, well, you know, this makes complete sense because I lost a family member in a very tragic way. And I have taken on this illusion that I have control in order to cope with that in some way. So the other end of that though, uh, I've gotten to a place with, with my grief where I, I don't feel like my brother is far away from me at all. So there, so on one hand, there's there's part of it that's been transformed, but then there's the other part that still has the capacity to disrupt my psychology in some way. Right, right. A question about that story you told, um, which I think is really powerful because it's true. You know, you recognize something was driving your anxiety at that point. And I mean, let's face it, that time was anxiety ridden for all of us because we were well aware that something radical was happening and we had no, nobody had any control until we did because you know therapeutics came in but for a while it seemed really really dicey but just a question that i think is really important you rec did you recognize that in retrospect that was happening uh, that your need to control the outcome and not to go through the pain of losing another family member, which would be devastating. Did you recognize it at the time or is it something in retrospect that you sat down and you connected and you thought, oh, that, that was what was driving that? Not, not right away, uh, not right away, but still during the crisis, you know, uh, before vaccines or anything, I had, you know, connected that. And can I say that that necessarily helped? I can't. Yeah. That's that, making that. Yeah. That, that's the question. Thank you. That That is actually where I want to go to, because often, and this this is something I keep reading in all the Jungian texts, or not even just Jung, but people who wrote after him, having an intellectual awareness of the complex, what's driving you, doesn't necessarily allow you to resolve it or deal with it any better. You're just aware of it, right? Um, and yes, I mean, you can rationalize with it, you can, but we all know that you can try to reason with with emotions like that, and you're not going to get very far. It will still grip you in the middle of the night. And so that actually is another important thing to bring up, the, the notion that just because you're aware of the underlying uh, mechanism, let's say, 
doesn't necessarily mean that you have the cap the capacity to deal with it and say, oh, okay, I know what this is. Let me just sit down. You can't because it's an emotional reaction. And I'm going to go a little bit further. I think it's probably hardwired in the body, which is why I think that a lot of the healers that talk about how body work is really important. I think that is where it's lodged. And I'm not quite sure, even with body work, that you can completely um, get rid of, uh, not get rid, get rid is the wrong word, um, more that you can address this. But I think it's better than just talk. Or maybe you need a combination of things. I think you have to address it from two different areas. And even then, I think the only thing you get, just from my experience with my own issues, is just a little, we talked about this before, just a little bit of space, right? So you can go into breath or do something that stops the spiral when you're really in trouble. I, I think that's as far as I've gotten with this. And I'm not sure if you've used some of those techniques and if, if you have, have they helped? In other words, beyond the intellectual understanding, is there another way we can address this so that in the moment you're caught and you're intellectually aware that you're caught, you can also have, there's another step you can do. Because I think there are steps. That's where, you know, where I think there are modalities that can help. certainly breath work and there I, I will I will go to actually you know I will go to a place in my mind I can say two words and I can be somewhere in my mind and, and, you know uh, sitting somewhere and, and so um, breath work or or you know even uh, things that have helped me before stretching or doing something getting up and kind of walking around right. uh waking my body up a little bit or or changing the position of my body through movement uh but i'd say more often than not um breath work and awareness having an awareness of maybe not where it's coming from immediately but having awareness of the mechanism that's been set off and and I think the more times you you practice that and your mind makes that connection, okay, this is what's this is what's going on inside me right now. Uh, you know it, it it's no longer mysterious, but you start to see it more as a mechanism. Mm -hmm. And when you see it as a mechanism, a mechanism is something that you can control, and, and so it gives you that that uh, uh, that freedom. And, and that does help because, I mean, that does take distance. But I think even the idea that going into an experience like that where you're uh, where a complex or wounds been constellated, they already knowing going into that, OK, this is what this is. Now I can do something about it. But even the fact of knowing what it is and being able to name it or whatever creates a distance. Yeah, it can. It can. I think it can. And I still think that the emotional part can still trap you. And I think where it gets really tricky, at least for me, is when an issue arises that is connected to that other one that you don't necessarily see the connection at the beginning. Uh, because often what right. you find is the cascading effect, right? Something connects to an original wounding. And because it looks completely different to you, you're not connecting that it's actually the same thing in a new disguise. And this talks to to the motion, the idea of... um how complexes are not fully resolved ever because they sort of seem to hang out <laughs> and morph. And, you know, you, you think you figure it out and then it morphs into something new. It's almost like it's in, in, in you know, ingrained. Um, and not all of them, but there are some that I think are a little bit harsher than others. And, and mm. that could be the way they, they manifest. But yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think what bothers me about the whole healing culture right now is just this, at the, what Marion Woodman uh, talked about in her book, Addiction to Perfection, that there seems to be a bit of underlying all of this, uh, a kind of egoic need to say, hey, I, I managed it, I healed it, I'm right. some sort of strong person. And it, go back, it goes back to that whole ego thing about, yes, uh, somehow I did say, it happens the same way with addiction. 
you know, that if you conquered addiction, you somehow are superior, you have some, and you know, these are very difficult things. And a lot of people actually deal with them all, all the day. In fact, today I, I um, put something on threads on addiction that Richard Rohr uh, wrote. And, you know, Richard Rohr is this um, Franciscan priest who is very steeped in Jungian ideas. And it really generated a lot of hateful comments. The first time on threads this has happened, I actually just deleted and said, hey, people, you know, here, just remember, I'm quoting out of context, go find the book if you're interested in the author. Do not make wild assumptions. And the quote, I can't remember exactly what it was, but what is it was about addiction. And he talked about how, and remember, he's speaking from a Christian. I, one of the reasons I like him, actually, is because he speaks from a Christian perspective, but in a me metaphorical way, so I can relate. Right. We were very literal. He would lose me, like, immediately. And uh, he's able to do that, which I think is brilliant. Uh, and what he was saying is that everybody's addicted. And the pattern of addiction, he says, we all have, is we're addicted to our own thinking, our own story, our own way of doing things. I think that's an incontrovertible fact. He can't say that that's not true. But then in the way that that was contextualized in that particular thought, it was that um, in the old days, they called that sin. Now, to sin, as you know, means to miss the mark. Okay, old archery term. Mm -hmm. As everybody jumped on and said, okay, I know, we know. What he was trying to say is that missing the mark, connecting those two things, just means that every time we are now present, right? Every time we're letting the mind run off in some crazy direction, right? And the mind is very addicted to that because obviously the mind feels, the ego loves that, you know, can create a story, can create a narrative, it can feel alive. Um, and his his notion that there's somebody out there who isn't addicted, he just said that's that's what he was trying to say is don't con yourself into believing that you are not addicted to something. And he was talking in this case to patterns of thought, right? And um, I just thought it was really interesting how it just completely generated this crazy response. And I thought, okay, so this, well, this is so, so they were, it was, in other words, I, I guess they were, a, for lack of a better word, uh, offended at the, uh, on behalf of people that have struggled with addiction. Yeah, they, they, felt, they thought he was, okay. he was criticizing. And yet this is a man who's worked with that, with addiction. He's gone into the jail, the jail system. He's, he's a person who is very acquainted with helping the people who struggle. And that's the opposite of what he was saying. Now, but, but yeah, he, he's bringing the rest of us in and saying we're all connected in this way. Exactly. And what it was read was it's a condemnation because you're calling it sin, but he was not defining sin in the way that the Christians see it. He was just finding it more in the way that the original, um, he wasn't defining it in that thought. The problem with quoting all of these people is you do need context. You need you need to know the right. word. So it's a bit of a danger right there. But my view of this is, look, don't come here to argue with me. Go find the book. If you really think this, if, I, if I'm quoting him and you kind of trust me, assume that there's a reason that he's connected to all these other people that I, that I quote. And so you're right. He was bringing everybody in. What he was saying is, don't think for a second you do not have an addiction just because you don't have a problem with drugs or alcohol or food or whatever your addiction that's visible to others may be. Because the ultimate human addiction is to our way of thinking. <laughs> and the way we think more or less determines what our life is going to be. Because think about it just right now. We're going through this in a period where everybody is supercharged and you know really caught up in their beliefs. If I, I've always thought, wow, if I, you could just change people's minds. But I'm aware that that is a very difficult thing. It may be the most difficult thing you can do because self-awareness is hard to find. And, um, you know, you got to be working at this all the time. But but a lot of the beliefs that we hold on to create a lot of misery, not only for ourselves, but certainly for others. And that's what he was pointing out, right? And he was bringing mm -hmm. the world in. Um, and uh, it, but, but it reminded me of this notion that, again, um, there is hidden in all of this and healing in in, in the notion of addiction and even healing from that, there is this weird idea that if you fail, and that word is so loaded, right? If you cannot rid yourself of whatever addiction you have, which is very visible, then somehow you are a failure as a human being. Um, and to me, it's like, let's just talk about the fact that as humans, that is one of our tendencies. And that's why I related to what he said, that the way we approach anything, because it is usually determined by our schema, whatever we have in our minds that is our model, is actually going to determine part of the outcome, right? I mean, there are things you can't control, but the way you conceptualize things is going to be part of that. And sometimes sometimes that can be very disempowering. 
And uh, anyway, I, I don't know where I went to that. I guess I'm, I'm talking about how addiction and healing and being wounded, all of these things are connected and, get, you know, rounding the circle. That's Gabor idea because he worked mostly with addicts on Vancouver's east, east side, right? Very wounded people who, who fall into addiction. Well, the, uh, I, I don't mean to get too in the bushes with this, but there, there's the other uh Christian definition of sin as well. Yes, the missing the mark. Uh, there's also the sin is basically anything that separates us from God. Mm-hmm. Now, I personally don't like the word sin because I grew up in a very judgment, guilt-based uh, paradigm with religion. Uh, and, and it's such a loaded word. But through my work in depth psychology and and i've been able to get some distance from that and been able to as long as it's put within the right context i can say something like sin is everything that separates us from god because i understand it more from a psychological and a metaphorical way Mm -hmm. so to me what that means in depth psychology is that basically what you said uh, god being that thing that we need to connect to within ourselves and all this other stuff that complexes generate, they can be both a path to God or a path, a path running away from God. And I am using God symbolically. Here. Yeah, no, I know. I know. Uh, so, you know, being able to connect to that. So anything that draws us out of that connection, you know, is not, uh, is, is impeding our healing. Right. Yeah. I See, I love the word connection again, because I think that is when you're disconnected. And w- w- when you say God, I immediately think capital S self or, you know, or the center of consciousness, which has a wider perspective than your limited ego may have. So if you're separated from that, and we often, the ego does have to have separation, because if it doesn't, it, you know, basically sits on a mountain and, and uh, chants all the time. So there, there is a place for that. But it's that moment of real separation. It's when I think, you stop listening or stop connecting and you start. And it, this is where I think what people like James Hollis and all the people we, that, you know, I quote constantly really talk about that people end up in their consulting rooms because they have been, they're separated. They, they've severed the connection between what is essentially a, a, a greater idea or a greater consciousness from their ego self. And some part of them is rebelling and they see it in their dreams and they see it in their phobias and they see it in symptoms, right? Body symptoms, everything. And so the the lack of connection is, I think, what creates the need for healing. And so, uh, so then that this takes it beyond, you know, the fact that you've been wounded or whatever, often we're, we're following paths in our lives that don't actually serve us, but we stay because of safety, security, um, because we're still, you know, somehow, you know, trying to please our parents, even though, you know, we're 95, it doesn't matter. There's still there's that, in, there's that parental figure inside that we feel like we're having to, to please, et cetera. And so those are the things that disconnect us. And then, you know, often the midlife begins, you know, this is where for some people, some people, they, you know, they spend their whole lives. They don't really even address this, but often there is a disconnect. And this is what drives people to analysis, to therapy, to inner work in some way. But it is the disconnection. So the the obvious answer is to reconnect. And how do we reconnect? Well, one thing I think reconnects us, I think, you know, everybody in my group does this. We do that. You know, you and I do this, is you, we just pay attention to the inner life. Now, I think you're with music and, you know, I'm off. Well, there's always a story going through my head and not a story about me, but stories that just create themselves. I think that's one way to do it creatively. If you have that that access, it's really helpful. But also through dreams, through through paying attention. Paying attention is a big one. Sometimes things happen, synchronicities, whatever, that really wake you up. Um, and I think that's what's really missing. And so you can do as much ayahuasca as you want, and you can do, you know, whatever it is. But ultimately, if you feel that moment when the disconnection happens, then you're back in that same, you know, mess. And and I'm I think this is where it's a lifelong, like you, you started this. It's a lifelong journey. It's not gonna end tomorrow, it'll end when you die. You know, and uh, and and hey, you know, actually, didn't Jung and Hollis both say, well, okay, what would you be without problems anyway? This is what we're here to resolve in some way, because things rise because they separated, and then some way we're trying to find a way to to connect them again. 
so yeah the word connection again absolutely central to them and, and, and but you know resolve is the other thing uh which is kind of a loaded word yeah you um i don't i don't know that anything is completely resolved except maybe our um our ability to engage with what's unresolved yep it's all yep yeah. And and I'm sorry if I acted like or if I said, maybe I did, maybe I, did. I don't think I would have said this, that it does ever get, I mean, think I said it doesn't get fully resolved, but it can. No, right. I, but it can. And I'll tell you how. It can for a second. It can if you're present and the thoughts right. fall away. But the problem is you need continuous moments of presence, which for anybody who's done a lot of mindfulness and meditation, it's really hard. You know, a couple of people managed to do it and we all go and we listen to them because they really are great to be in the presence. I think of Prabhalayat, who was one such person, but that's rare. And that's why they are teachers to the rest of us. But it is true there's an escape clause, which is if I can get out of whatever my mind has decided is the problem at this moment and the feeling in my body, if not get out, but just connect to the breath. We'll talk later about the breath and just connect to presence. And if it can do that continuously for just long enough, then it's like a wave, a storm just calms down and, and you can mm -hmm. you can manage, right? And that's, I think, what we should be teaching people to do because if you feel it once, it's very powerful. You think, oh, okay, there's peace. There's peace right there underneath all the turbulence, underneath all the, I want this, I don't want that. Oh, somebody's hurting me. If you can just connect to it enough, it it just reminds you. And, and at the moment, you'll lose all connection to it and you'll still get uh, upset, et cetera. But you know that, if you can, if you can remember that you can actually, there's a moment where you can reconnect and, and, and things for a while. Anyway, I'm not saying they last, uh, like you can do this continuously, although you can for moments I have, uh, but that's, I think the only way out. And it's not really a way out because you know, you're going to have the next day you may get back into your body feels weak or you've had a bad day. Your stomach is off and some you're back in the same, same problem, but yeah, that's the only and it's not a solution. That's a momentary kind of awareness that that can that can be helpful. I think. Does that make sense? You're quiet. <laughs> no, it makes sense. Uh, a momentary thing, you know. I that's what I think of when uh, meditation and my experience of it is that's that's what you're doing. That's what you're 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 pulling from it is is making connections to complete presence mm -hmm. and doing that uh over and over also i guess it, it it could be stated i'm sure you've seen examples of this that healing methods uh like so so we're there's two kind of topics we're talking about here today we've talked we're talking about uh not only healing itself but also healing methods and one thing that i've found in in thinking about this and just observing is often healing methods can be wounding themselves mm. How so? Psychedelics, for one, yeah, sure, yeah, uh, uh, could be wounding. And I've talked to you some about my personal experience of that when I was much younger. Right. And 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 that's a wound that uh, I'm still working with. You know, meditation. Uh, you know, you can you can you can meditate all day long. But what happens? And this has happened to probably both of us, I'm guessing. Is you can be uh, you can almost meditate, meditate to the point to where you become disconnected. Can be, yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, your your feet aren't on the ground and oh, you're yeah. kind of walking walking around and not really in your body anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, yeah. That that's that's where an embodied type of meditation really really helps, like a walking meditation. But yeah, no, I look. We all know the spiritual uh, bypassers or the people. I mean, that's that's kind of a, a negative. The people that strive so much to 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 disconnect that they're kind of floating on air, but they're not really grounded in reality. And we are in in living in in time and space, and maybe we do need a little bit of grounding. Tip of my tongue holds the winds of my soul blow spirits of old life. Death. Religion is a 
big religion, and we've talked about this before, but religion is a huge pathway to healing. And it has been for a long time, but it's also also been a, a pathway to, to woundedness. You know, uh, I, I saw, and I think I shared this with you, someone on Instagram had posted, I get, I'm assuming it's a person that has experience with addiction, but they said something to the fact that, uh, you know, the worst thing about addiction is you have to become a religious person. And and that's a grand generalization, of course. But uh, I think I, I understood a certain part of that is that addiction and that vulnerability makes you, you know, you give yourself over to something. And, and in doing that, you know, you're making this very deep connection with yourself. But in that vulnerability uh, is is you know, you're placing your vulnerability in other people. Now, now that's interesting. I wonder if that's the case, because I've been seeing some of that also on social media, the criticism of AA programs, for example, because they always ask, although I believe they've been modified to some degree. And But the notion of a higher power, right? The I, mm -hmm. I give up. If you, again, I think a lot of this is a language issue. If you say, I give up the notion, the ego gives up the notion that has any control over anything, that's surrendering. I think right. very powerful, right? But the language that it's used, that's being used, is so loaded because let's start with what you said, which is the most important thing. Religion, and for me as well, by the way, has been a wounding experience for many people. So to yeah. even mix in the word God is going to set off a whole bunch of chain reactions, which are not necessarily um, helpful. And so I think the psychological, the therapeutic language can be helpful there because it could say, no, what, what it's asking you to do is surrender. And I think that in trying to stay controlled, that creates so many issues. And so the idea that I do surrender to a, something I have no control over can be a pathway. It's still difficult. But the, the, there is a distinction between that and a religious conversion, though. Like, in, in, well, AA or NA, it is not directed the you're tapping into that religious energy or whatever you want to call that. That's not something that's an organized entity, something within yourself. And I think that's the primary difference between, I mean, because, yeah, they have made changes as far as how open it can be. Uh, it's not about belief, actually. Whereas surrendering to, to within a religion itself can open you up because you are so open and you are so vulnerable. You know, there are other forces that can come in and kind of steer you in a way uh, that has absolutely nothing to do with the experience that you're having. So, but with AA and NA, with what I've seen up close is a lot of healing. I have my own experience with, with that, that I told you once. I, I've never been a member, never been a member of NA or AA. But I was going uh, through something that was just incredibly awful. And I had a friend that had been through AA in, in NA for, uh, for years and years. And in the matter of a day, going over the steps, there was something like very almost magical that happened where I felt a, a calm that I, that was escaping me. So, I mean, like from an experiential, I have somewhat of an experiential understanding of, of the 12 steps. And I guess I'm saying is that's an individual journey. Whereas I, I think within organized religion, it's more of a mass journey, but it takes the individual journey to get there, but there is a danger in it because not only you may be psychologically surrendering to this bigger thing, but you also are surrendering to a structure of some sort. Yeah. Um, and we've talked about this before and I don't remember, I don't remember how much we got into it, but I don't, I don't want to rehash something. No, no, but I, I mean, the two points there, first of all, it has been incredibly healing for many people and continues to be. So I think it's one valid path to help you in, in, in things like what you just talked about. Secondly, I think when you mentioned the whole religious uh, notion, it is a structure and it's run by people. And so all the, those right. people are flawed. They're, you know, they're not going to be uh, 
coming at, you know, there's often power uh, dynamics involved. There's often, you know, abuse within those, certainly uh, in many of the churches as we continue to see that. And so it's a scary place. It can be. It doesn't always. It can be very helpful as well. They're great for community building, et cetera, et cetera. But when you surrender to a structure, then the structure has rules. And then you're kind of, the, the whole thing is predicated on you following that particular structure's rules. And that can create problems down the line as well. But then again, what we said is, look, didn't we both say some things are never going to be healed? So maybe these are just ways communities to support us. And then we're not even going to talk about the, the most um, important thing. And I think Richard Rohr in his book really talks about this so well, one of his books, about how how do you heal in a society that is this crazy? Like, this is also the other thing. No matter how much personal work you do, we're part of societal structures they're really, really not well. I mean, they're themselves um, ill, for, for, for want of a better word, broken. You know, So we're participating collectively in, in an experiment, which is often terrible. And so there's so many things in here. But I think ultimately, all of these pathways will appeal, will help some, won't help the other. All The only thing you can really try to do, in my view, it's just find a little bit of awareness, a little space of awareness. If we could do that once a day, that you're already further ahead than most people. And then kind of walk as much as you can with that awareness and, and understand that no matter how much you think you have something resolved, it will probably show up in a different form. It may not, you know, in some cases it won't, but it might. And just to get away from the notion that there is an end goal, right? But that we're just trying to live as as best we can with whatever we have access to and uh you know it sounds very defeatist but i i don't mean it that way because i have not, i've the, the search for healing in itself that process is really is really the best part about it because you're learning a lot about yourself and that's the whole point of the, the thing right so to me it's like if you you know this is part of what life's about so you include it like you include everything else right yes yeah. another example you know of of methodology uh psychoanalysis can that can be kind of an interesting area people go people go into that and have been going into that since early last century but one thing that jung was always stressed about psychoanalysis is that a person should not be in psychoanalysis for ever because the goal here is to ultimately for an individual to be autonomous and not have that dependency that is created through a necessary dependency that is created, I think, in psychoanalysis. Yeah. But if that dependency goes on and on, then then something's being and, and I hate to say the word, but but the individual's being failed in some way. And, and so uh, I, I think that's another way that something like psychoanalysis that has helped many 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 people can at some point uh you know there, there there could be a downside to it if one develops too too strongly of a dependency that we can't separate from right so you're really talking about a situation where we know some of these where someone's been seeing a therapist for 30 years now of course if you're a therapist yourself or a psychoanalyst you are supposed to stay in analysis only because you want to make sure your own complexes don't get transferred to your sure to your patients or to your uh, analysis, but uh, I mean, I look. This is always a, a problem, right? That in any time you're in a relationship, a therapeutic relationship, it can become the parent that you go keep going back to. You can get a substitute parent going on. It takes a lot of awareness on the part of a psychoanalyst or a therapist to not let that happen. And again, if your livelihood depends, and I don't want to be critical about this, but we're in a system where you know healing, fast healing, isn't helpful in the systems we've set up to some people. Not saying this is what happens, but it can. And so you can create a relationship that does go on and on and on. Now, honestly, if it is helping the person in some way manage life, then, I mean, this is this is the issue here, right? Who's to say? And we're all so different. Some people feel they need that. Maybe they were never parented and they feel, okay, well, this provides that for me. I understand what Jung said, that ultimately we are trying to be um, fully ourselves and that we should you know, there's many paths and you shouldn't be dependent on anybody, but 
that may not be the that may not be possible for everybody's i guess what i'm saying and i think we have talked about that before that whole individuation process for so many so many people it's just not going to happen the way that he conceptualized he was pretty extraordinary some of the people that surrounded him were pretty extraordinary um in the sense that they had resources and they had uh each other for many people that is just not going to be who they find so in the absence of that i mean i look i i got to propose something and you know people will say maybe this is a lazy way to do it but for me as a reader my reading has actually helped me understand a whole bunch of things um you know i've done breath work i've done somatic work i've done you know you name it i've done all of that but ultimately i like reading about other people's experiences. And I love, this is why I quote them, because there is so much wisdom to be found in just being able to, A, work through the work of people who are, you know, who've, who've had very vastly different experiences from my own and who've really grappled with this on a way that I can't because that's just not my life. So there are so many ways. You can look at it in your own life, you know, how you've connected through your music, right? So it's not one path. And I think that's the other thing we haven't really explored that, there are so many different paths to the same, on the same journey, no goal, just many different ways. And, you know, there's a possibility that uh, you you don't ever embark on it at all. And that's okay too. Like I, I, I think the idea of pushing people to heal to, you know, this again is part of the kind of masculine that we see in society where everything has a goal and everything is perfection. And then you get a, you get a trophy at the end. And maybe that's just not going to be available to everybody. And so I, I always get a little bit nervous about this because um, I've, I've seen the consequences of people feeling like they're failures because they haven't arrived at point X or they still feel, you know, uh, issues around their parents or well, you name it. So that, that's the only thing that bothers me a little bit about it. I think John Lennon's a perfect example of someone that uh, he went through several phases with several fixes. His first one was psychedelics. The second was transcendental meditation. And every time he thought that he had discovered the one thing that's going to, you know, solve everything, then he did primal scream. Mm -hmm. Well, and then you can count his relationship with Yoko because she took on a kind of a savior. Like his anima projection to him was very wrapped up in, in kind of the savior in some ways. Uh, it comes out in his music that way. And so he got very wrapped up into that. And, and so I guess the thing ultimately to, to take from today is there is, I guess, a level of discernment in multiple ways when dealing with, when when speaking about healing or, or trying to engage it with it, I, I would say, is that there is no silver bullet. And, uh, you know, it's going to be an ongoing process for the rest of our lives. Well, if healing means, which is where I think the derivation to be whole, well, you know, this is really the individuation process in a nutshell. And it's lifelong and, you know, and we'll get to different places at different times. And sometimes you go, something is very hard for people. Sometimes you actually have to take a step back and, and you, you, you tumble and you have to get up again, right? So anyway, I mean, look, uh, it is very much in the culture, and especially now with the the new the attention that's being play, placed on psychedelic assisted uh, psychotherapy, which does seem to have a lot of promise. But then again, if people start believing that is the only way, we're back in the same problem that we have always had. Because for some people, it will be very healing. Some for some, it won't. But yeah, I mean, it's a journey, right? For, for uh, that's the way I look at it. Thanks for listening. If you like Jay's music and would like to support the creation of more, follow the link to the GoFundMe page in the show notes. You can support my work by buying my new novel, Invocation, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and through many booksellers across the world. For now, until next time.
Through the sand 